Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am host of the Guidelines podcast. Tonight, our uh, topic is Chiari malformations. Specifically, there was a recent guidelines publication entitled Congress of Neurologic Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Patients with Chiari Malformation. This was a three-part uh, publication, Diagnosis, Symptoms, and Surgical Management. But tonight, we have a very special episode in which we are incorporating a patient advocate perspective into our guidelines uh, podcast. Patient advocate is part of the uh, best practice recommendation of the National Academy of Medicine, and we're hoping to incorporate patient advocates into future podcasts as well as future guidelines projects. So without further ado, I'm, I will ask our guest, Dr. Cormac Marr, as well as uh, Dorothy Poppy to introduce themselves and give us a brief overview, not only of the uh, guidelines uh, chapters, but as well as their view on the patient advocate input and how that has influenced the guidelines come to fruition. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Dr. Maher. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Elder. And so first I want to thank you and the Congress uh, for giving us this opportunity to to do this podcast today and review this, this uh, work product that uh, really so many people contributed uh, so much time to. I, I feel... Um, honored to be able to talk about it. And uh, I think it's important to note that I was a very small uh, part of the overall effort. Uh, so many uh, neurosurgeons from around the country uh, contributed to the overall work product. Uh, certainly Dr. David Bauer, who's the uh, head of the guidelines committee for the pediatric section, was a, a, the major contributor. Uh, Dr. Jogi Patisipu, major contributor. Uh, and, and many, many others who you can see uh, on the author list. And then, of course, uh, Dorothy Poppy, who was representing the Bobby Jones, Chiari, and Syringo Myelia Foundation, who, as you noted, uh, Dr. Elder, was the uh, patient advocate uh, representative for this group and, and contributed so much uh, to our work process uh, all the way through. So very uh, pleased to be here. The guidelines themselves are available for review uh, on the internet, as well as in the Red Journal coming out in, in last month's uh, issue. And obviously, there's there are many guidelines uh, to go through. Uh, the third part of it, which uh, I was going to just discuss some of our results briefly uh, today, are on surgical indications for Chiari surgery. And I think when, when you look at the result of the guidelines uh, decisions, the first and most important thing uh, for readers to understand is that guidelines are uh, essentially trying to uh, um, address a moving target. Uh, that is to say, a guidelines committee always has to have a start date and a stop date for the literature that they're going to review. 
uh, it's simply impossible to continue to review literature uh, as it's being published. So our start date was 1946. That's not a problem. But our stop date for review is January 2021. And I think that's really important to recognize when we look at some of the guidelines and some of the literature that was included in the guidelines and some of, I think, the important literature that wasn't able to be included in the guidelines because of that decision to, to end the review process in January 2021. So for part three, the surgical interventions, we looked at 760 abstracts uh, that met our screening criteria. And from those abstracts, we selected 80 uh, articles that we thought met initial criteria and were uh, included in an in-depth review. Each of those articles was then characterized according to whether they addressed our specific questions and then the level uh, of evidence that they contained. So the first question, uh, of course, is a very important one, which is posterior fossa decompression um, versus posterior fossa decompression with duraplasty, um, and which uh, is a superior operation. We included 17 uh, studies in that uh, portion of the review. 16 were class three. One was thought to be class two. That was the Pisapia uh, study. Um, I will note that, in my opinion, most of the studies uh, did show some superiority for the duraplasty operation, but not all did. One study in particular uh, found superiority for the uh, bone-only decompression. That was the Pondé study. Uh, so in the end, the committee had to conclude that there was uh, mixed evidence, and we ended up making a statement that surgeons can consider either the, the duraplasty uh, or bone-only uh, operations. Um, for part two, we looked at tonsil reduction. Here, there were 10 studies that were included, all class three evidence. Six found no real difference with tonsil reduction or lack of tonsil reduction. Three found superiority with tonsil reduction, and, and one found superiority without tonsil reduction. The third question was whether or not intraoperative neuromonitoring could be indicated uh, in these operations. And essentially, this is class three evidence suggesting that it was okay to do neuromonitoring, but there was no uh, compelling reason in the literature to suggest that it was mandatory. And then uh, finally, there was a question of how long should surgeons wait for symptomatic or syringomyelia resolution following surgery. And this was all class three data as well. We essentially found that uh, some studies suggested that syrinx resolution and symptom resolution could be found early after surgery, as soon as uh, three months after surgery. But some other studies suggested a longer time frame of about six months. And uh, some of the, the best data actually showed that there was continuing uh, syrinx resolution for longer than that, uh, out to a year. So again, the committee uh, ended up concluding on the basis of class three evidence that a six to 12 month uh, time frame was reasonable. I will note again, our, our stop date was January 2021. And there were a few subsequent articles that were not included in our review that I think are, are worth noting. Um, in June 2021, um, an article came out, Sadler is the first author, that did suggest that posterior fossa decompression with duraplasty was superior uh, with respect to scoliosis outcomes and those with syringomyelia. And then very importantly, in 2022, a Park Reeves study, Akbari was the first author, and that uh, did suggest 
uh, for sure that the duraplasty operation was superior with respect to symptom improvement, syringomyelia resolution, and also that it was less likely to require reoperation at a, a very distinct difference there, 18% for the bone-only operation and 8% for the duraplasty operation. And that, uh, I suppose, does fit well with my own uh, individual opinion uh, that I would offer, which is that uh, when I do a Chiari decompression, I always uh, open the dura. I always do um, address the tonsils and reduce the tonsils. I always sew on a patch graft. And again, I just offer that as my individual uh, opinion. And I think that, you know, these guidelines, again, are a moving target. And I suspect that if we were to do guidelines again in a few years, I hope that we're going to continue to get better and better evidence that are going to continue to address uh, some of these questions. And I think that there's the guidelines right now offer a wide latitude of different surgical options. But for me right now, I think if your duraplasty operation has a low enough complication rate, if you're not seeing a high rate of pseudomeningocele, if you're not seeing a high rate of CSF leak, and those rates should be very low, um, then I think you can justify the duraplasty operation as superior. Again, I offer that as my own opinion, not as something that's found in the guidelines uh, that were just recently published um, by the group. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll turn things over to uh, Dorothy Poppy. Again, it was, it was really invaluable having uh, Dorothy participate in these guidelines right from the beginning, sitting in on all of the meetings, contributing to all of the discussions, and I think making a very important impact on, on the end result. And as you said, Dr. Elder, I think this is a best practice going forward for all of the guidelines committees to involve patient advocates and representatives of significant patient advocacy groups in these discussions. So thank you again for the opportunity to discuss the, the guidelines. Great, Dorothy. So again, I wanna thank you from um, Bobby Jones CSF for including us on this podcast. Very happy to be here. Um, just to give you a little background, um, I'm the executive director of Bobby Jones CSF. And I've been working in the nonprofit arena since 1991, when my son was diagnosed with Chiarian malformation and syringomyelia. And as a background, I uh, contributed as a volunteer for 10 years, and then took a development role for six years. And currently I'm an executive director and have been for the past 16 years. So a long time in this field and I've watched it change. So this opportunity for Bobby Jones CSF to be a part of a guidelines committee is near and dear to my heart because we recognize that a systematic review of the literature of Chiari malformation, it's important for patients as well as physicians. We were very honored to participate, adding a patient voice to the discussions and having direct participation in the process enables our organization to speak authoritatively about how the results were derived and um, then to confidently disseminate those results to both patients and physicians. If you're not a part of the process, you're just getting a set of guidelines and it's, it's not helpful in our office. So being a partner in this is extremely helpful for answering patients' questions. 
the second thing I think I want to say is that in addition to understanding that we need better evidence in the literature, because right now we're facing that, as Dr. Mar said, cost three evidence. Um, when patients ask, well, what do you think or what do you know? And we can point them to things that's helpful. It's helpful for them to understand. And right now we need more prospective, randomized, multi-centered studies uh, to get better evidence. So that spurred our organization on to really focusing on how do we participate as a patient organization in the research to create better evidence from square one. That's kind of a patient perspective on why I think it's really important to be part of this process. That's that's uh, fantastic. Can you can you tell us, um, you know, on a on a more granular level, what what were these interactions and and how how specifically did these do, does the uh, patient perspective do you think influence some of the I don't want to say day to day because this isn't a an everyday task necessarily, but it, like a, on an ongoing basis, what what is the kind of the steps of being a patient advocate, like the from from the first day you're involved into subsequent days and going forward? With this project, so uh, first of all, we were we were asked, and I have to say that when my son was diagnosed, I read the literature back in 1991 to see what was available not being on this committee, but so to me, what's in their literature is important. Patients come to us and ask, who's the best doctor? Or what is the best evidence? That's the call we get in the office. And I can honestly say, well, there are so many great doctors across the US. First of all, where are you? You know, in your, in your, because you want to try and stay local if you can. And then the second thing is, well, um, what are, the, what are the results going to be? Do you have, you know, how their results are? And then we turn back to the literature. So step one is what is in the literature? And this gave us an opportunity to actually see from diagnosis to surgical outcomes, what is in the literature? And, you know, from my perspective, who's creating the literature and I don't want to point to single surgeon studies. I, I don't want to point them to that. I think that the idea is we have to replicate it. We have to see the numbers. We have to see what the true results are. I also think we have to include private practice in those results because there's a lot of private practice surgeries that go on that we're not accounting for in a lot of these studies. So there's a push from my group to say, hey, what, why can't we include some private practice in those studies. And what's the global perspective? Day one, you know, I guess from patient perspective is um, what's there? Am I going to get better? What's going to get better? My symptoms? Are they going to get better or not? Or why are we doing this surgery at all? Mm-hmm. So I think um, this helped focus our group when we pick up the phone to answer for patients what the actual things that we can point to as evidence, not gestalt evidence. So as a a leader um, for your organization is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like part of your job is to help uh, to kind of interpret or transmit this information to your group is, would that be accurate? And if, if that's accurate is, 
you know, do you think there should be some other mechanism for that? Should that be part of the output of a guidelines organization is something that's in language that's more easily digestible for patients? I think that that's correct. I will tell you, I can give you a little example. We worked with um, Dr. Limbrick on the uh, PCORI study, uh, posterior fossa decompression mm -hmm. with or without duraplasty. And uh, the first call that we got in the office about participating in that was, well, if I get in one study, is that going to harm my child? Is, you know, so in other words, if I'm picking this, is that going to harm my child? And the question that we, how we dealt with that was we got Dr. Limbrick to get on and say, the reason we're doing this study in a video is because we don't know the answer to that. And that's what we're trying to determine. So then we put it on video format. We put it out to the public of this is why we're looking for this. And it helped to allay some of their fears about enrolling their child in the study. And when you see the results of the guidelines and, you know, and having participated in guidelines writing and on, on my end, I, I know that these sometimes the recommendations, you do all this work and then the recommendation seems a little, um, what's a good term, wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you have two choices and then the recommendation is you can do either one. How, how um, is that interpreted uh, by your group as, um, as okay? I mean, is that interpreted as kind of a failure of the whole process because we didn't come up with a conclusion or how, how does, how is that interpreted on your end? Well, from my end, I have the advantage of saying in 1991, people were not even looking at this and, and today we're trying to solve those problems with patients and with doctors. So I have a great perspective on this. And I think I can say to any patient coming in, they're interested. They want to find the answers. They want to find the better answers. But it takes time and it takes studies. So so in your role then, if you is is if you want if you were to influence, you know, um clinicians and scientists doing this kind of work. What would you say from the patient perspective as a patient advocate? Here's what we want to see next. I I can tell you that for a fact. We want to see prospective randomized, yeah, as much randomization as possible, but multi-center, everybody coming together. The controversial things are the hard things to answer. And and I'm not going to pick any one, but there are controversial things with Chiari and in particular. And unless we get a standard, define what the standards are, and then do the studies, we're not going to be able to get to the answer that the patients need. So I think, you know, what do people want to see? There's a lot of, and I'm going to bring up this, I guess, the craniocervical instability is coming in, you know, what is Chiari actually? That's a big question in the office. What is it? You know, is it just symptoms? Is it the MRI? Is it constellation? Well, which constellation of symptoms? And why is it different for different people? I don't know if anybody has the answers to that. You can have a, you know, a super huge Chiari enough. It's, it's it. You bring a, up a good point. We want prospective trials. So let's kick it over, kick it back to Dr. Maher and say, what, what's, What's uh, what's holding us up from doing things like that? What's on the horizon? What can we expect over 
you know, or if you guys are on a five-year cycle or seven-year cycle with your guidelines updates, what can we expect next? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Elder. I think um, I'll answer the question, but but first, I I want to highlight something that that Dorothy said, which I think is really important. Um, you know, even when we're coming up with a lot of class three evidence right now, I think these guidelines can be really important for identifying gaps in our knowledge. I think sometimes we as surgeons just sort of take for granted that we're going to do things the way we were trained to do them and that that works well. And it's really interesting sometimes as a surgeon to see it just laid out there in print to say, you know, there's not great evidence for this thing Mm -hmm. that you were taught. And maybe there needs to be a study uh, to decide whether or not that's the right thing or not. And guidelines have a have a really good way of shining a light on those on those gaps in our knowledge. So I, I think that this is this is no exception, this Chiari document, and it's done that. So what's next? I, you know, obviously there there has been an excellent randomized control trial, the Park Reeves uh, study, which is continuing to come out uh, in bits and pieces with some of the different aspects of that. And I think that the future is going to be more studies like that, but not necessarily only randomized control trials. I think that there's a um, a, a really exciting future for really high quality registries in Chiari. Dorothy mentioned private practice. A lot of Chiari surgery is getting done in, in private practice venues right now. And a lot of the controversies in Chiari, which Dorothy named one of them, and there are more, some of the most controversial practices right now in Chiari are happening in in some practices. And I think the way we address that, it's very difficult to get a committed surgeon to sign up for a randomized control trial when they believe they're already doing the right thing. But we can set up registries where we track these uh, surgeries and these outcomes. And we can really answer a lot of these questions with with very well-performed registries. So I think right now, that's something that I'm I'm personally very interested in. In the future, I think there's going to be a, a um, a lot of that in the next five years. I think I don't want to speak for for Dorothy, but I think the the Chiari Syringomyelia Foundation is going to be involved in that because that's really a group that can that can get everybody together. Um, you know, I think in academic neurosurgery we tend to associate with like-minded people, um, and one of the beautiful things about the the Bobby Jones CSF group is I always tell Dorothy, it's the big tent party. You know, we can get everybody in the same room talking even when we disagree about what we're doing. So I think that group uh, is going to have a a big role to play in the future with settling some of these these, uh, disagreements. And hopefully that'll benefit patients over the long run. Great. One one thing I did want to ask since we're we're back on you, and I I wanted to ask it before you're talking... You know, I'm I'm interested to know: Are there studies that aim to dis- aim to determine if there are certain patients who would benefit? Are there criteria that would lend themselves more to a bone only surgery versus those? I I you know I'm accessing a very old memory of an attending teaching me when I was a resident many years ago that here's the patients that you should just do bone only. Here's the patients that need duroplasty. Are there studies in that regard? Well, Dr. Elder, it depends who you ask. Um, in my opinion, um, I don't ever do bone only unless there's some reason I can't do a duraplasty, you know, a one-year-old with a huge venous sinus that's in the way or something like that. But otherwise, I'll 
I'll open the Dura. I think that uh, there is increasing evidence that's a superior operation. I'm certain that in my hands, it's a superior operation versus doing a bone only. Um, and that's we can see emerging evidence that that's true with respect to syringomyelia resolution. And I believe that um, syringomyelia resolution is a nice sort of objective uh, finding of, of improvement, whereas symptomatic improvement can sometimes be harder to pin down, but I, I believe that it correlates. So if you ask me, uh, I try to do duraplasty in every case. There are people who would disagree with that, uh, just to be candid with with you. But um, uh, if I could try to predict the future, I think that five or 10 years from now, we're going to have increasing evidence that duraplasty is superior. But, but that's with the very important caveat that if you're doing a duraplasty operation, you can't get pseudomeningoceles and CSF leaks, right? That, and anytime people are, are looking at data that suggests that the two are equivocal, usually what the data will show is that the bone-only operation has a Shorter, shorter operative time, shorter time in the hospital, lower rate of complication, and that the duraplasty operation has a superior rate of syrinx resolution and symptom resolution. And what I would say to that is, okay, we'll just be very careful with your duraplasty. Don't get CSF leaks, uh, and then then you win. Then you're going to have a superior operation with a low complication rate. Uh, we're running low on time. What did I leave out? Maybe if if each of you wants to take 30 seconds or so and just Tell me where what question I uh, flubbed or forgot to ask. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you flubbed anything, Dr. Elder. It was a great conversation. Um, I just, again, want to thank you for having me and, and the Congress uh, as well for letting me participate. And again, uh, I was a very small part of this. Lots of co-authors on these papers um, that, uh, that all contributed a great deal, um, you know, especially... Uh, Dr. Bauer, as head of uh, the committee, I think made an invaluable contribution here. And then, you know, Dorothy, uh, she's she's done so much uh, to advance um, our understanding of Chiari over the years and performs a, a really valuable uh, uh, function now, I think, even within organized neurosurgery, attending all of the neurosurgery meetings, participating in the scientific program at, at neurosurgery meetings. I think it's a, a really great example of Again, how patient advocacy groups like Bobby Jones CSF um, can really make a difference. And, and I hope that we start to see that in other pediatric neurosurgical diseases uh, as well. Dorothy, anything to add? No, I, I'm just very humbled and grateful to be a part of this whole process. And all, the, all of you take so much time out of your lives to really try and make this better for patients. And I just want you to all know that you're really appreciated. So thank you. Well, I think that was an excellent conversation. I very much appreciate uh, both of our guests for joining us. It was a, it was a unique um, take on the guidelines podcast. Um, but I, I think that the, the guidelines projects will benefit greatly going forward with uh, participation of patient advocates. So uh, very appreciative to you both for donating some of your time tonight. I also want to thank um, all of the all of uh, Dr. Myers co-authors, as he mentioned a couple times, for their tireless work bringing the guidelines projects uh, to fruition. Uh, for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines topics and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone a good night. Mm -hmm.